0: Joseph! Mary! We made it in America! Don't say my name like that. I feel like some people are like, Murray! Murray! Murray, we made it in America! (laughs) Well, welcome back to the Black and Brown Get Down Podcast, everyone! Uh, we happen to have our election special, so it's going to run a little differently today. You'll hear from a bunch of the homies who uh, are dope, amazing, and also killed it during this election season. Um, But look, for now, you got Joe and me. What's popping, hey, Joe?
1: What's hey, what's
0: happening? I'm excited um,
1: about this episode. Ready to yay. learn what we can do moving forward. What the people gonna do. What the people gonna do.
0: Listen, what did what did we do? Hey, I, that's I mean, real people though. have voted in historic numbers. I just, you know, it's been uh, amazing, more so because time and time again you see uh it's us, the people who, you know. Have to save this. Mm-hmm.
1: Dun, 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 dun.
0: Right, right, raggedy ass, <laughs> raggedy ass country. Right, again, we gotta, again. we gotta
1: constantly show up and show listen, out, but we get the lesser. But we, you
0: know, right, you know, right. Like, but that's listen, we are gonna have to change that, and it's gonna absolutely. have to change immediately because we can't keep handing and delivering these wins without, um, you know, our humanity being respected. Uh, mm. Where were you? Like, I mean, how was your election night? Um, you know what where were you? what were you doing?
1: I feel like the whole week I was glued to c n n or m s n b c or some sort of news platform so the the election night i don't know I was just overcome with anxiety, all these emotions feeling that I was feeling and then that next morning where I was like oh shoot he didn't he didn't just win you know what I'm saying like i know mm-hmm. in twenty sixteen I woke up like yo what is life coming to? And then, you know, 2020, I woke up like, oh, there's hope. There's hope for change. Um, You know, Pennsylvania was still outstanding. Uh, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, which flipped blue, which is crazy. Um, We'll talk about Arizona a little later, hopefully. But yeah, um, yeah. Right. Right. So it's just, you know, constantly, you know, we see throughout history that uh, the global majority comes to uh, yes for the global save,
2: majority,
1: right to save the United States from the hot mess that uh, we find ourselves in. So, yeah, how were you feeling?
0: Uh, yeah, I was feeling cool. I mean, I, I was really, I was like, it's it is what it is, you mm. know. Like, yeah. we well, gonna see, you know, what happens. I, I wasn't. <laughs> I was trying to disconnect. I think. A little bit just because I wanted to protect myself and my emotions. We had a bunch of uh, local elections here, um, some school board race, DA campaign, um, and judge races here locally. And so I wanted to connect to those specifically. Um, connect to, you know, one of the biggest ones and one of the biggest issues actually how I came into the work is um, through my family's experience with um, my brother's incarceration. And so the DA race is a huge, huge race for me. Uh, One, because it really shapes what the culture of our city is going to be like, not just in the things that we celebrate in New Orleans, we love to celebrate things, but like even how we're able to move freely, how our, again, our humanity is respected, whether we're talking about, um, the culture of NOPD, whether we're talking, you know, we keep talking about defund the police. Well, it's in all of the things that we, you know, including the DA's office. And so we need someone there who's obviously going to, uh, be laser focused on creating public safety in this city. Uh, but to be able to do it in ways that we're talking about, um, treat people with dignity, you know, allow people to uh, really move around and have their humanity respected. Um, so yeah, I'm supporting Jason Williams for DA. Uh, but then there's there's a couple of other things. We had the library uh, millages come up, just a couple of different things. So I wasn't tripping off of uh, Harris and, and Biden. I was more just like, I had to disconnect because I didn't want to, you know. Right, yeah. But then once I came back around to it, I was like, all right, I actually have to, you know, really think about this and marinate on this. And so that's why I was like, okay, let me call the homies and figure out like, how did we actually deliver all these states, whether we're talking about Georgia or Arizona or, you know, um, specific elections like the D.A. race here in uh, Orleans Parish or like the uh, D.C. Uh, race that Christina Henderson, she'll talk to us about in a little bit. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's, you know, obviously it's all important Um but the local elections are um, were specifically important to me because I, I just didn't have it in me for the all night watching, you know, MSNBC and Rachel Maddow. That's my girl. Um, <laughs> I just didn't have it in me. I couldn't do it this year. I that's had to cool. protect. I had to protect my energy.
1: Protect your peace, definitely. But I had to protect you know my where peace. You are. Yep, gotta um, know where you are so you can go forward to where you're going.
0: Yeah. Should we jump into, into the the special? Oh, the yeah. special special?
1: Definitely. Let's get it moving.
0: Okay, cool. Um, well, we're going to start off with uh, my home girl Tanika Boyd. Tanika is one of my very, very best friends. Let's make sure that that is her first... Uh, piece in the bio. She uh, is, though, the National Organizing Director and Deputy Political Director for the ACLU, a community organizer by training. Uh, Tanika sits at the intersect of activism, progressive politics, and culture change uh, to disrupt systems that continue to marginalize people from the criminal justice system to um, the movie industry with unique instincts for solutions. She is a thought leader, a speaker, and a writer on popular issues facing marginalized communities Um, prior to her work at ACLU, she was the chief of staff at color of change. And prior to that, she spent time in the Obama administration where she worked on domestic policy issues, including education, faith-based partnerships, and ending homelessness. Um, she is also, um, was supposed to be with us at the black and brown get down at South by Southwest panel this year, but unfortunately we had to cancel that due to the pandemic, Womp, womp, womp. Um, Yeah, so she's incredible. Excited for you guys to get to know her today and for us to get to talk about this election season. Thank you for joining us, Tanika.
3: Thanks for having me. Amongst other things,
0: National Organizing Director at ACLU, Deputy Political Director. I mean, do I need to... She just appeared in Vogue. Do I need to keep going down the list? What do you think, Joe? Well, maybe you can remind me. <laughs> right. Listen.
1: Let the
3: people the, know. It, Let the people know.
0: It's the red lips and 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 the hoops for me. I mean, yes. it's the leather—the leather band for me. Don't Keep me up, Mary. Don't <laughs> keep. I love it. I'm here for it. Um, I mean, so I know you, but the people want to get to know you. This is actually going to be uh, one of my favorite episodes—an election special. Um, and um, but before we get into all the kind of political wonky stuff and fields conversation, I want to just like. Have them learn more about you. Uh, One of the questions that we always talk about is you know, we do this hopefully because we're anchored from a deep place of community. What is uh, your earliest memory of community and like whose spirit do you bring into this work?
3: Yeah. um, You know, in so many ways, I think that uh, what defines me is the community that I grew up in. I grew up in the Midwest, in Milwaukee. Um, In a lot of ways, that's a a working poor community, deeply, deeply segregated, predominantly black community. Um, You know, parents in a lot of ways were organizers. They weren't formally trained as organizers, but they fall for every 50 cent on the dollar. So I got to witness that like every day of my life and just watch people um you know take something and and make it even greater and deeper mm-hmm. and so i got all the same stories that every other organizer has of going into the church basement and seeing people organize for different things and going to house and tenant meetings and neighborhood block associations and all kinds of things so i got to witness that just like early Um, idea of what it means to build relationships with people around you to move Even like in a real like granular way But to move something so that you could just have like a slightly better tomorrow Um, And I bring that with me um, In my work all the time, you know, I have grandparents who in a lot of ways Were organizers. I have great grandparents who in a lot of ways were organizers And I think one of the, one of the stories that I love the most, um, and one of the narratives that I, that I always bring with me to my work and even just like, you know, just who I am as a person, um, through ancestry.com and just like family, just like family narrative. I found out one of my ancestors was born in 1850. Her name is, um, Belle Nolan. She was born into slavery in Mississippi and just understanding what does it mean to be like free at 15 Mm -hmm. and then to be married to someone who else, who also was a slave at 15 and then to have like nine children before you're 30 years old and to be documented in the U S census as like somebody who didn't have more than a second grade education and was a, a laborer and kind of like all of these things, but there are still like such powerful narratives and stories about her and her life and who she was. And, you know, everybody think they great-great-granny was beautiful and just like, you know, how gorgeous she was and all these things. And so I always just take that spirit of who um, I imagined her to be and all the things that she overcame and all the ways she like built just a better house for me to live in. And so I always think about, I always think about her.
0: Come on. T.D. Bell. Uh, T.D. Bell. I love that. Ooh, the
3: remix. And
0: right. <laughs> um, I love that. And I mean even as you imagine her right I mean I could imagine you know what she looks like uh I mean she was probably giving us if you're giving us all this in 2020 I can't imagine
3: even a little something you know just a little something I believe she was I know she was bringing it and
0: I think that's one of like just my favorite things about you right is Uh, all of your gifts and how dynamic you are and how you weave all these things together for us. Whether we're talking about style, whether we're talking about travel, uh, social justice and like deep embedded values, how do you bring all that together? And, you know, oftentimes we talk about trying to show up as your full self. Well, I tell you, I I mean, I always experience you as showing up as your full self. Like,
3: how do you do that? Um, I just think, you know the boundaries never really fit, right? Like it's so much work to fit in like all of these boundaries that people place you in trying to like be respectable enough to get this job and trying to be like dumb it down enough to fit in this space. It just never really worked. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it just made sense for me. It's like liberating and freeing. I think once you, once you cross that threshold over 30, yeah. You know, and you got a stable job and the ability to have a stable job. It's like all bets are off. You know, it's like you don't you don't really think about all the things that people need you to be and want you to be. It's about, you know, what it what does it mean to show up as your full self? What does it mean to say, you know, I used to dream growing up as a poor black girl child in an urban community about all the countries I would go to. And to be able to cross 60 countries off that list is a dream of mine that I like, you know, I enjoy that. That is important to me. That's a part of my identity. To be able to, I think, take up the the Black tradition of stunting and dressing and flossing and dripping as you do. And dripping is, you know, it's just such a powerful tool to signal to society how you choose to show up. And mm-hmm. I've seen people show up through fashion and style in a way that, you know, they didn't have any money. My grandma was at, you know, the dollar store every Tuesday and, and, and uh, Thursday at the Goodwill, you know, when it was discount days. Right. Um, and she walked out of there, you know, in a, a scotta blazer, you know, cinched in at the waist. You know, she had sometimes she had to poke her own holes in the belts. It was always about like looking good, feeling good, you know, smelling good, feeling fresh, owning who you are. Um, And I just, I just love that. I love that. And I feel like it's also, it's something just deep in black and brown communities too. Mm -hmm. It's like a part of our culture is like showing up like that. And so I've always known that in navigating like professional spaces, there was such a like dry, dull kind of corporate, even in nonprofit spaces. They just want you to fit in this box and they want you to, you know, they don't want you to show up like that. But for mm. me, it's like, this is a part of my culture. Mm. Like, it's a part of my culture to be in a red blazer. I just got to tell the people, it's a part of my culture to be in a red blazer with some matching red pants with some matching red shoes. That's, right. that's how we do. Listen, because I have met your mother. And when I tell you she had on pink
0: from top to Here's bottom top. and she, that waist was cinched.
3: I mean, she was given. <laughs> I, I understand that this is a, look, a part of the deep legacy. You know, and sometimes she give me, a, it's a little too, you know, 1991 for me. But, you know, I love her so much. Right. I her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I need your top five. I need your top five countries.
3: Um, Top five countries? Yeah, and
0: if you want to learn more, obviously go on to at Tanika B on Instagram, TikTok, uh, all the things, Twitter. Um,
3: But give us a
2: top five. Twitter is a
3: different space now. Twitter is very much activism now. All right. My Twitter account is very much activism. But top five countries... South Africa, number one, because it's just like, you know, it's a lot of different experiences. You can be in a safari, you can be in a, like, you can be in, like, Ma Bonang in Johannesburg. Giving I love you Ma Bonang. vibe. You can be in Cape Town by the beach. And it's also a new democracy. And they're just showing you how it's done. You know, I like the idea of, you know, some of the economic policies that they're putting in place specifically for the Black majority. I think it has a long way to go in lifting people, but I love South Africa. Um, Greece, Santorini specifically. I just like, you know, I love Mediterranean countries. Ghana. uh, I went to Ghana for the year of return um, for folks in the African diaspora. And it was just, oh, I know people still paying off that credit card debt. (laughs) You know, sorry for them, but it was a good time. Right. It was such a vibe. It was just, You know, West Africa is a lot of things. It's a lot of things, but it is is damn sure a vibe. It's some good food. Um, I love Brazil for the same reason why I love South Africa in a lot of ways. It's just like one of those African diaspora countries that um, it's just you can get so many different experiences in different cities, Mm. in different states. Um, It's just incredible. And then I would say um, Japan. Japan is I've just never met a more populous country Mm. that was so quiet. Like Tokyo is like, you could be walking down the street. They have more people than New York City. And it's just quiet. It's calm. It's orderly. They have good fashion, good food. I just love Japan. And it's only 400,000 of us in New Orleans. But boy, when I tell you we
0: make noise and you're going to hear every single step. I know it. I know it. (laughs)
1: All right, cool. So we want to get to the nitty gritty. Um, With the election of Kamala Harris um, as the vice president-elect, it's pretty much setting a precedence that the Democratic Party will no longer just have a ticket of white males. Um, But then again, that's a big maybe, being that white supremacy has kind of taught us throughout history that, you know, it's never to be underestimated. Um, Kamala's victory is a result of decades and decades of organizing by Black women, including yourself, what feelings did you experience when the AP called the election?
3: You know, when the AP called the election, um, you know, what, it's been eight days, nine days. Um, I was shocked at my own shock. I was like, I was surprised by how happy I was Mm
0: -hmm.
3: and uh, relieved I was. As a black woman um, also as like a HBCU graduate, right like mm-hmm. um I mean she is she is many things to many people mm-hmm. um, and represent representative leadership is not you know it's not power
1: right no we
3: know that from Barack Obama right right um, we know that representative power is you know it, it doesn't move the needle right and in, and oftentimes it can hurt. Because we'll be fighting for the same things under a, you know, Harris or under a Biden Harris administration, um that we were under um the Trump administration because it her 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 election doesn't tear down the imperialist structure, right? But right. it still means something, right? Like her being there actually does mean something. It does signal something. It is a space that, unlike the presidency, has exclusively been white men, mm-hmm. right? And for the first really foray, um, really opportunity really legitimate um, chance to be a black woman, to be um, a woman of immigrant experience, to be a woman of Jamaican descent, to be a woman of Indian descent. I mean, I think that that is powerful for representative um, Leadership—it's powerful for kids. It's powerful for people like me. I think there is something to this idea that there's some relatability in the White House, mm-hmm. right? And that that brings some level of like calm and relief. But you know, we're not taking our eyes off the prize. The right. prize is freedom. The prize is liberation. The prize is thinking through how we make these systems work <laughs> for us, and when they don't, we tear them down. Um, and so, so much as that, she is a part of that system. I think she has to figure out for her what does that mean for her and her people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be tough. It'll be tough for her. There are times where she will disappoint us. But I think in that moment, um, I was di- I was I was relieved, mm-hmm. and I felt a sense of um, pride. It wasn't deep. <laughs> it, it's not deep, but it, mm-hmm. it was a sense of pride. Um, in that, like she's sitting in that seat, but, um, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough. But there's something about when I see
0: her chin up that, um, uh, what is it? The, not the trench, but the, um the peacoat and she got that collar up and she oh, giving yeah. me that good naked. Like, hey.
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, something <laughs> about that picture that I'm just like. earrings missing, yes. Yeah. There's yeah. something about that frame that I'm just like, uh, she could be all that and she is this because she ain't nothing.
3: I can feel that. I can mm-hmm. I know no definitely is yeah, definitely right like it is in my life right now.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah.
3: So and I, I think- love it. I think so many of us are more surprised by how much we more we relate to her than President Obama.
1: Oh yeah. You no know,
3: because she just, you know, they 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 try to say it's frivolous to be dancing and bopping and you know, but black pain, you know, black joy is not the absence of black pain. You know, mm. it's like you can be joyous and and still be revolutionary and still be invested in liberation and and work within systems um, and think about ways to dismantle them. I don't know if that's her role, but it's still just like, I know that's not her role, Uh, but it's still, you know, it's just when she be bringing it to spaces, it's just incredible to see. And I'm I'm always happy to see that.
0: No, I love it. Uh, One of the things that was completely different about this election was that uh, sort of how we organized was different, particularly for electoral politics, right? And uh, knocking on doors is not the same in this election that it was, you know, in the last. It's much harder because of COVID. Uh, As the national director for the ACLU, somebody who we can uh, sort of all count on to make sure that, you know... um, not just that doors are being hit in that way, but sort of is thinking uh and coordinating in the organizing space uh how how did how did you think through this differently uh, how did you think through this huge challenge that you were up against?
3: yeah, I mean with covid um and then shortly thereafter the murder of George floyd and the uprisings that really spurred a more diverse movement this summer. Um, And then the just subsequent murders, right? Tony McDay, Breonna Taylor, the just re-emergence of her case. Um, And then, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. And then, you know, thinking through just like scenario planning with election. It was all really for the first time in my lifetime. you know, really utilizing digital organizing tactics. I feel like in the organizing space, we kind of saw digital organizing as a bastardization of organizing. Mm. You know, it was just like, oh, you want to tweet about it, you know, clicktivism, this is that. But I really appreciated how the electorate really normalized texting and normalized phones and normalized those like non-door-to-door contacts, um, especially in cities, in places that really had strict COVID um, precautions and rules, where you really couldn't door knock, um, we just had to adjust. I think 2020 as a whole was just like a fast-ass lesson in being nimble and being okay. and thinking about how do you land the plane, even though it's shaky and we don't know where this thing is going. Um, so we just had to, you know, we had to adjust like everybody and move.
1: Okay, cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so. You are current- so
3: big. So Bay Area. Okay. Oh, yeah.
1: For- <laughs> it's in me. I can't, I can't read it. Um,
3: (laughs) It's in you. It's just
1: in you. Yeah. All right. So 45 says he won the election. We know we're going to have a new president though. Um, But nonetheless, our work is far from over. So recently you told Vogue that the ACLU will be doubling down on its efforts post-election. Now that the victory is behind us, What's next for you all? And um, where should our listeners be focusing our attention and what can we do to support?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is when the real action starts. You know, we have a network of activists around the country. Um, We call them People Power. So PeoplePower.org is our site where we cultivate um, and support and bring forth actions for people who, who see ACLU as just a part of their like activist community. Um, and we're going to just continue to gear up on the federal things that are important. That's racial equity, you know, that's economic relief specifically related to COVID. You know, this country um, saw fit and this Congress in that administration really saw fit to give, um, everyday working people and people who are unemployed due to an, an international pandemic, twelve hundred dollars. No. So it's money that's due to the people. So we have to go get that money and we have to work on it and we have to put pressure on Congress to make sure that they're delivering some sound policies for people. Our liberties are still in jeopardy every single day in this country. Every day we're not fighting for that, they're in jeopardy. And so that still exists, even uh, when there is a new administration. Accountability is important. We still have to hold this administration accountable like we've done the the 46 other administrations. Uh, we have to continue to do that, count uh, just year after year. And then also there's just a bunch of state and local initiatives. You know, there was a promise um, to the people last year around figuring out ways to defund police. Uh, we have work in Minneapolis that we need to finish with, um, you know, local partners and uh, being led by black organizers on the ground. There's a bunch of reforms happening around the country with police accountability. We gotta get people out of prisons. We have to reform prisons. Um, it'll be the 50th anniversary of the war on drugs uh, next year. And so I think that will be an incredible time to hear some sound policies from this administration around what they plan to do to make sure that people who were affected, not just people who were incarcerated under the war on drugs and, and, and disparities, but also people um, like us who grew up in communities uh, where so many people were incarcerated, our cousins, our uncles, our, our brothers, our, our, our parents, Um, and, and what, what kinds of, uh, infrastructure and measures we're going to put in place to make sure something that was so devastating to black and Brown communities doesn't happen again. So yeah, we, we're going to be pressing forward. Nice. I'm here Thank for, you for it. sharing that. Yeah, for sure. And I'm right behind you. So you right let me know what you. you need. Well, you know, you always in front of me. So Ooh,
0: <laughs> listen, like one that of that. the reasons I'm one, I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. I admire you. Um, no one to me walks with more conviction, more brilliance, more style, uh, more integrity than you do, Tanika Boyd. I need the next, you know, give us two minutes. Look. Because I know, look, she has to go to her next meeting. Um, what advice do you have to a young organizer or, or a mid-level professional who's just like, I know I have more than this in me. Like, I'm, I, I need to be on this. Like, how do I practice freedom? How are we moving towards liberation? And I don't feel it at my current job. What does that person do? What advice do you have for them?
3: Yeah, it's not about the organization, the job, the entity. You have to be committed to the work. You have to be committed to the mission. You have to have a vision of liberation and your contribution to that. And that mm-hmm. will that will exist in many ways, right? It, it may exist in social impact. It may exist in politics. It may exist in organizing. It may exist in narrative building. It may exist in at the intersections of all of those things, but we can't be so prescriptive, right? This is not our parents' economy. This is not our parents' jobs. You don't have to stay in places. Um, an organization that you walked into, you know, may not be the same organization a year later. You may be a different person. I think a lot of that needs to be said out loud so that people understand that that's okay as long as you have a commitment to the work. Um, one thing I'll share, because I think it's really important, I think it's also just indicative of the kind of relationship that Mary and I have. You know, one time I said to Mary, I don't know if social justice is for me. And Mary said, you don't, You it don't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. You don't choose it, it chose you, you know? <laughs> She's like, you can't, it's nothing you can do, right? right. You." You, you have to be committed to the work. It chose you. You are chosen to do this work. Right. So you, you came may, out the
0: womb and they said, we go together. And we go
3: together. <laughs> you, know, and you can be tired and you can take breaks. And we definitely need to normalize self-care and sabbaticals and thinking through how we become whole. Um, and just because we're anti-capitalist doesn't mean that we can't also make a living wage doing this work and, mm. you know, figure out ways to... You know, be happy and whole and sustainable doing this work, and so we just have to make sure that you know our commitment to an organization doesn't override our ability to be commitment to be committed to the work um because that's that's what's most important.
0: Thank you. Where Thank you. can we find you? Where can the people find you?
3: Online.
1: <laughs> Online. Social distancing. <laughs>
3: social distancing. Right. Okay. At Tanika B. Okay. On all social media. Or from time to time. Uh, On you- Vogue. Hey. <laughs> <laughs>
2: in
3: my hood in Harlem. In
0: Harlem.
1: At the post office.
3: <laughs> at, at the post office. Trying to get a package. <laughs> you may see me.
0: In five years, where will we see you um, besides, you know, uh, laying out strategy for all of these major brands and, uh, you know, agencies like the ACLU, what, what are we seeing?
3: You know what? Five years ago, I don't think I could have predicted I would be here. And I didn't even have a vision of myself in this moment. And so Whatever I say will fall short of what I hope will be m- my life because I know that, you know, I'm guided by my ancestors. I used to have my ancestors' wildest dreams child. Didn't we all have that t-shirt? Mm-hmm. But the thing about that is I think it's so reductive to our ancestors because I think they they actually imagined, <laughs> they imagined these things. They had just fierce, a fierce imagination, radical mm-hmm. imaginations. And so I just hope that I am continuing to lean into my purpose. I hope that I am being a aspirational figure in a vision for people like me who grew up um, poor with just a, just a limited version of what was possible. Um, And I grew to know that everything I needed was, was actually fostered and right there in me. Um, And I do to Mary's point, I do hope to, continue to be doing social impact um and leaning on some of these brands who posted, you know, they black squares right. on social media and just holding out Gucci. Social- Ooh. <laughs> you, know, you said it. Name <laughs> um, but holding them accountable to, right. to what they said they were going to do and just continuing to build black power and black agency. For I love sure. it.
0: Thank you for well, Thank you,
3: Tanika. All right. Thanks for Hola. having me. Thank you. I
1: appreciate it. Nice meeting you.
3: Nice meeting you too, Joe. This
0: was great. One of our guests today for our election specialist, is Christina Henderson. Christina Henderson is a dedicated public servant and education policy advocate with uh, just, I mean, a deep, deep. Wealth of experience uh, and passion for promoting equitable outcomes, um, specifically in D.C., but has also done national work. She worked for D.C. public schools before becoming the deputy chief of staff to D.C. Councilmember Grosso. She has worked for several political campaigns, including Hillary for president in 2008, and is currently serving as legislative assistant to Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. What up, Chuck? um, this year she campaigned and won a seat on the DC city council, like huge. She was, I mean, she'll talk about it more, but I mean, all during COVID, I'm, I'm, she's just major respect to her. And for the first time in 20 years, the DC council will be um majority women and for the first time in 12 years uh it will also be majority black. So welcome Christina. Thanks so much for having me. Know, thank, thank you so much for being here. Uh you have so much to do. So I'm sure you've hit the ground running. Um so thank you for giving us a a few minutes. Uh I just want to jump right into it um uh, because you know, I've spent so much time with you, but I know folks want to get to know you. Uh, What are your earliest memories of community and uh, whose spirit do you bring into
2: this work? Yeah, I would say, um, honestly, my earliest memories of community actually go back to church. Um, My dad is a minister. Uh, My mom used to sing in the church choir. Um, You know, Black churches, it is a foundation of community, especially in in black communities. And so I think that would be like my earliest, um, you know, memory in terms of that. But then, you know, a little bit later, um, my mom was in the military and was on a deployment. So I lived with my grandmother for a while. Um, but my grandmother was a teacher and you know how teacher hours don't really work out. And so I would literally, you know, walk from elementary school to a neighbor's house Stay at my neighbor's house until my grandmother was able to come home and come get me. And that was also, I think, a, a formative um, memory and experience around how communities take care of one another, how they take care of the kids, how, you know, the older ladies, they always had eyes on you um, if you were acting up. And uh, snatch you up real quick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And no one would ask me any questions because they'd be like, yeah, you know, you were wrong. So I think those were like my earliest. And it, it I bring those experiences into the work. And, and just sort a of reminder that community is deeply rooted in my upbringing, but also how we do business, how we think about others, how we want to see change is based in community. Cool.
1: So tell us about your journey leading up to the campaign. Like, how did you get started in politics? And also like what made you run?
2: Yeah. So the start in politics kind of came a little late, I guess, in life. I'm gonna call it late in life. I was in college. <laughs> I was a <laughs> freshman. Uh, I went to college attending to like major in English. I wanted to be a writer. Um, and I wanted to write about politics. I wanted to write about the experiences Mm -hmm. of communities and things like that. And the 2004 election completely changed everything for me. And I no longer just wanted to record history. I wanted to be a part of making it, Mm -hmm. um, and changed my major to political science, um, worked on some political campaigns to help get some good people elected to office, made some switches to want to focus in a little bit more on policy. So worked for a couple of school systems and then, um, had an opportunity to work, Um, on Capitol Hill and then also in DC council and local government. And I actually never, you know, in the back of my mind, I might've thought, yeah, I'd love to run for office one day. But when I left the council in 2017 to go back to Capitol Hill, I just assumed I was closing that door. I'm okay to be a policy staffer and do that work. Um, But even being away from local government, you know, I was just, as a resident, very frustrated in what I was seeing happening around the changes that were happening in the District of Columbia and how I felt like, you know, we had a lot of people who were talking about equity, but no one was actually putting forth policies to truly make that a reality, to truly make sure that your zip code in the district does not determine your access to success. And, you know, that wasn't the case. And so, Um, I was actually encouraged to run by my former boss, um, who decided not to seek re-election, and I jumped right in. (laughs)
1: Nice, nice, nice. Well, again, congratulations. Um, But with that, what were the biggest challenges campaigning in this political environment? Um, You know, you got the climate of justice, and then also you're also dealing with the pandemic pandemic.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it has like a lot of things that were kind of sliding together. So no one ever anticipates that the first time that they run for office is gonna be during a global pandemic. Mm. So when I announced my run in November of 2019, the outlook of the city was very different. The outlook of the country was very different. I had a different type of campaign plan around, you know, we're gonna knock on doors. We're gonna be at the barbecues and the fish fries and the civic association meetings and the block parties and the parades and all of those different things. And then everything shut down in March. And then having to try to figure out as a first time candidate running in a citywide race, how do I get a message out to as many people as possible in a virtual context or where people are wanting, you know, we're very conscious around social distancing and those kinds of things. So that was very challenging. Now add to that on top of that, you know, the social justice and racial justice protests that were happening around the country, especially that was happening in DC at the time, um, I think stemming from the George Floyd um, killing, brings about a different type of challenge because I think you guys kind of know this, right? There is a generational divide. When we talk about policing and community policing in society, um, we can go back to the 94 crime bill and sort of think like how that kind of came about, but also here in DC. And so how do you bring your authentic self in as a 30 something year old, right? Who has had, you know, experiences in this city and, and seeing what is happening to black and brown folks in terms of being over-policed and walking around, just wanting the sense of being like, I wanna be presumed innocent without having to dress in a suit and not wear a hoodie and all of these different things, while also balancing the concerns of seniors in our neighborhood who remember what it was like in DC in the seventies and eighties and want to be able to also walk down their streets in a sense of safety and calm. So I would say that the pandemic was one, but also how do you thread this needle around, I think this ongoing conversation that we're having in black and brown communities around policing from a generational aspect.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's I mean, I can't imagine as an organizer and a part of why we're doing this election special and we're talking to you know folks around the country who have, um, you know, killed it in races like you. Right. Uh, but who who've also been the organizers who've had to, you know, get out there and like make um well I'm guessing in in your campaign you were the organizer right because (laughs) it's it becomes such a thing where you don't have a crew around you you know uh like you used to right having campaign meetings and uh but it's really just a grassroots effort and so we've been talking to folks just to learn more um and then there's the thing of like we're also trying to lead in very different ways uh you know In 2020, I think, you know, what we've seen from some of the best leaders is in addition to, you know, um, having the big job, having, you know, a family, having, uh, you know, responsibilities within your family uh there's this thing around like taking care of yourself how have you been doing that is that a thing or <laughs> you look great right <laughs> now but i mean how do you, how does one do that and while juggling all of the things um and yeah i mean give us the give us the tea on that because i'm struggling
2: i mean i'm struggling too i'm not going to lie like it was hard um you know from march until the beginning of september um, my daughter was home with us while we were working from home and also doing campaigning, right? Because daycare centers were closed in DC and having to balance childcare, being a candidate, working, but also wanting to take care of yourself. I'm not going to lie, it was very difficult. It was very difficult. And I, you know, she's back in daycare now. So it's a little bit easier. Come on, Jesus. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Same crew. I was like, oh, no, you going. <laughs> right. You're going to make this. Uh, a way out of no way. <laughs> right. you putting that mask on and you keep it on all day. Uh, <laughs> see? No, but I, you know, there, there, are, you have to steal moments for yourself.
0: Yeah.
2: Of quiet, mm. of reflection, of just being, you know, by yourself. And for me, sometimes it was like, okay, I'm going to go to the grocery store by myself and I may sit. In our driveway for ten more minutes just to collect just me time, so that when I walk in the door, I can be fully present for my kid, right, and mm-hmm. and and for my family all together.
0: But I, also, what are we doing on in those ten minutes? We on Instagram? We're Facetiming someone? We're just quiet. Man.
2: I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's just like I'm gonna close my eyes. I'm a, it was my grandfather used to say, "I'm gonna rest my eyes, <laughs> right?
0: Mm. Be all the way sleep, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah." <laughs> i just rested my eyes. I'm just resting my eyes. Um, but sometimes it's like listening to music. I love music and just like feeling in that moment. Um, but, you know, I have to, we have to give like lots of claps to the internets for getting us through COVID because- yeah. Uh, whether it be the verses battles, whether it be like the memes online, the I tiger, think, uh, the tiger, what oh, tiger King, oh,
0: Tiger King, Tiger yeah, King, uh, season.
2: <laughs> we've managed to find these again moments of collective community through these this very difficult time, and I think that I've held on to those as like, okay, this is good, this is a good point in twenty twenty, this is good. Let's let's keep it moving. Um, but yeah.
0: I love that. So the current one is uh, where it started and how it's going. So, I mean, we see how it's going. It's going very nicely. Where did it start, Christina? What's your frame of where it started?
2: Um, Oh, gosh. When I was just a lowly staffer Mm. sitting behind a boss on the dais, being the one who's passing the post-its, being like, you need to ask this question. (laughs) You need to ask it again. Um, I think it just, it starts with a person who had a deep interest in policy, but was frustrated with the status quo and made a conscious decision to go into government to change the status quo and change things for my people, for my community, to make it better um, and to, to progress things forward. But I would also say like in politics too, you know, representation matters. I spent a lot of time early on in my career and even now being the only woman in the room, being the only black person in the room, the only person of color in the room as decisions were being made for this community, but those folks were not at the table. And so it's a little interesting. Now in January, I'll be joining a council that will be majority female and majority black again in what was chocolate city still coming back
0: well y'all brought chocolate city back <laughs> <laughs>
2: i told y'all my friend
0: was awesome but
3: she
0: <laughs> <laughs> listen i'm ready to go back to chocolate city um yeah i'm happy to visit uh yeah. Are, are the people going for inauguration? Uh, do Oh, listen, do I hit oh, you up for
1: no. inauguration? We're going, we're going for inauguration.
2: See, that's why we can't have <laughs> anything.
1: <laughs>
2: I was telling somebody that I was like, can y'all really keep the people away though for inauguration? Especially when we start the week with OK. Right, you know, that's a know. jump off
0: already.
2: Uh, <laughs> People going to be like No, we're just going to shut down the street We're going to have a block party socially right, are celebrate and have a good time and I've been like-
1: social distancing the whole time But I'm about to be out there that entire week Like, right. no joke I, I'm going to have to
0: figure out which Because I've heard some of the bars and things have closed Especially, you know, um, bars that I know even from an out-of-towner
2: mm-hmm. uh, I'm like, oh yeah, that was my spot yeah, still? that's been the sad thing about COVID is like literally every week um uh, a bar, a restaurant that had some attachment to like my my younger years in DC like mm. Marvin and yeah, black owned establishments I'm like it's closed. <sighs> yeah, yeah, Marvin closed. Oh, man. Um which their rooftop was
0: yeah, everything all of it.
2: I honestly everything. last weekend when after they uh called the election for Biden and it was 70 degrees out. It was like 75 and sunny in D.C. There was not a cloud in the sky. I was like, Marvin would be so lit right now. People so drinking, lit. having a good looking time. Good.
0: First of all, that crowd there looked so
2: good. It would have been great. But um, I, I'm confident that we'll recreate these spaces in the future. Um, and you know, as, as a council member, I'm looking to support uh, Black and minority and women-owned businesses to push that forward because, you know, I'm about building generational wealth and owning, owning, building, and growing. Come and-
0: on, building our own institutions. Listen, well, the last question was really about, uh, you know, that the time is now for Black and um, brown women who are in political office to, uh, lead. And, you know, it seems like we're willing to follow as a, you know, as a country, which I'm excited about. Uh, but it's not just about leading. There's something about us that just leads very differently. And so I wanted you to tell us about that because, um, know you talked about it in your interview with the Washington Post, uh, Washington Post, um, endorsed you, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I want to geek out on that a little bit. I mean When I see all of these uh, notable, you know, I mean, leadership of the Democratic Party, like tweeting you out and we're just expressing, um, you know, support for you. I just want to geek out on that a little bit. Tell me about that. Like, how did it feel to, you know, get endorsed by the Washington Post?
2: Um, It was crazy. I will be honest with you. I honestly... Let me tell you how I found out because people think that like I knew, Mm-mm, had no idea. Um, I had had a conversation with the post, did an interview, you know, going on about my day. It was a Saturday morning. I had a lit drop. So we were going out to do contactless canvassing But um, I was having, I was feeding my kid. We're having breakfast in the morning. And a friend sent a text in a group chat because, you know, group chat saves lives if you don't have one. Yet. All the time. Right. <laughs> and uh, one of my friends, Angela, was like, "Uh, so are we not going to talk about this? That's all she said. I was like, what are you talking about? Talk about what? And she dropped the link. And all I saw was my picture. <laughs> and I <laughs> On was the like, thumbnail. oh, oh what <laughs> Um. so my husband has this picture. And I think he might've had taken some video. I've never let him post it because my hair was not done. At the <laughs> time. I was dressed, but I look wild. And um, it was just, I feel like a moment of validation and pushing the momentum forward. Like, you know, for your listeners who are listening in and to your earlier question around women running in leadership right now and representation, um, there were 24 people in my race. Mm. I was outraised. I was outspent. I was out-endorsed. Literally mm-hmm. every labor union in our city endorsed someone else. Every progressive organization in our city coalesced around a different candidate. And I still got it done.
0: But God, <laughs> Look, I'm giving you that real uh, PK realness right now.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, and I will just say this though, I mean, I feel like number one, there's an the appetite people want, they want to vote for women. So if you are a woman out there who thinking about running for office, and have to be council, it could be school board, whatever it is, now is the time to seize your moment. Now is the time to find your coalition, find your people, and like go after it because um yeah, the, the moment is hot. And I feel like this is a great opportunity for us to right size and put some balance in organizations and institutions that have been overly white for a very long time and bring a different tenor of debate, but also bring some different issues to the table. I was the only candidate in my race who was talking about childcare in a pretty constant way. And a lot of that came from the fact that like my own lived experience, but also recognizing That child care is not just a care issue. It's an economic and workforce issue. This was even before COVID. Now people, you know, they like, oh yeah, child care. We need that. (laughs) Um, And so, I don't know. To all your listeners out there, run, lead, win, build. Let's do it.
0: And do it right. I mean, listen, it's, you know, I, I think representation is so important. And I also think about, you know, um, that in addition to representation, um, you know, being right on policy and being right on the issues is so critical. So, um, so yes, run. And also, you know, some people are great charismatic figures, you know, but might need some help on the policy and don't be afraid to, you know, like you said, collaborate with other people. Um, So you can get that support. Excuse me. Ooh, I was giving you that PK realness and now it's in my throat. God said, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were acting up. Right, right, gotcha. right, right, right. God was like, Ooh, right. If if you gave us a 10 years out where, where you're at then, what do you think? I know this is a hard question.
2: Uh, uh 10 years? Well, you know, I'll hopefully still be serving um hopefully dc has statehood we a state now right Mm -hmm. and you know we have a, a bigger say in what's happening in our in our city and in our country around us moving forward um but grounded in community that's where i'll be best of luck we thank you and we're so grateful for you thank you for having me
0: And last, we have the homie Luis, Luis Avila. Luis is a longtime organizer. He came uh, to the US in 2000 from Mexico. Luis has really become one of the biggest uh, change makers in Arizona. Luis and other organizers spent the 2000s fighting um, back against the harsh legislation criminalizing undocumented immigrants in Arizona and in other states. He collaborated with organizers and leaders. Um, to advocate for the DREAM Act, fight against SB 1070, and challenge Joe Arpaio. Fuck Joe Arpaio. <laughs> Say that. Uh, right. Like, bro, I used to hate hearing his name in the news. Right. Um, Make you cringe. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, He spearheaded Somos America, the largest immigrant rights coalition in Arizona, and served as the vice chair of Unidos Board of Directors. He currently serves as an advisor for 270 Strategies and runs his own organization called Iconico. Uh, where he has coached a new generation of community organizers around the world. And as you know, Arizona flipped blue in 2020 and for the first time in 24 years, helped to secure the Biden-Harris victory. Give it up for Luis. Thank you so much for being here.
4: (laughs) Thank you for the invite, Mary. And nice to meet you, Joe, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Nice to meet you.
0: And Joe got that deep voice. Look, don't, oh, like don't that come was with good. that, yeah. right? You were don't doing that, that like Barry White check. fam.
4: Like, you were doing the mic check, and I was like, oh, <laughs> 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 <Hey. All>
0: right, <laughs> right. All that good feedback we'd be getting in beyond Joe. So, um, yeah. mm-hmm. or too <laughs> so, um, so okay. We're going to talk about Arizona. I mean, first of all, Luis is the homie. And so um, this is going to be super, super fun. So tell us about your earliest memory of community and really like what draws you to this work. And then whose spirit do you bring into this work?
4: Yeah, well, I, I think, Mary, that I, I started at a very young age. Uh, when I was 15, I'm originally from Mexico. Um, and I lived in this city called Querétaro, which is about two hours north of Mexico City. And, um, you know, at the age of 15, um, I tried to run for student government in my high school. Um, and the principal was like, no, not you. Uh, and he made this like law, this rule, uh, for me not to be allowed to run because I was always mm. causing trouble in school. Um, and he's well, like, he was can't. like,
0: if you had a suspension on the books, you can't run.
4: Kind of, kind of. It was like, if you have, you know, in Mexico, they give you a grade for discipline. So my grade for discipline was always really low. I uh, guess I was always causing trouble and, uh, and he was like, no, because if, if you know, your grading discipline is this much, you can run. So I, he, she, he didn't know that I was going to uh, recruit a, a, another person. And she's actually happened to be the daughter of the school's principal. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was in my school uh, and she was in my, in my same um, grade level. So I recruited her uh, and I I ran her for the city government. She won. So that was my first (laughs) campaign. (laughs) But I didn't know, of course.
0: I I love that. You were like, nah, fam, we're kingmakers around (laughs) here. (laughs) I, I was doing it out of
4: like anger, you know, but at the same time, I was thinking like, you know, what do we do as young people when we have you know, things to say. And back then, you know, I'm all I'm like, I didn't have, we didn't have Facebook or even MySpace, you know, it was the times where like, we we were finding spaces to say things, right? Yeah, so did it in the in the streets, you know, uh, dancing or rapping, or some people did it, you know, uh, like me, we, we created a, a fans, a, a magazine, you know, some people will call a fanzine. Um, and this magazine was like a bunch of angry young people who were writing about politics and culture. And that was the first time I actually created a community where every Wednesday mm-hmm. we would meet at a coffee shop and like come up with ideas about what we wanted to write about in the magazine, what we wanted to do. Uh, and really, that's kind of what carried me over. You know, I was writing a lot about politics. My father had lost almost everything uh, after NAFTA. He was a, a dairy dairy farmer and he had to sell all his cattle because we couldn't compete with the American and Canadian powder milk that was being imported into Mexico. So, you know, it was one kind of like rebellion against the the principle, but at the same time, also like a need to express my anger and discomfort and, you know, irreverence against the system. And, and that's, I think that's how I got started. And I would say that to what I bring uh, in the spirit that I bring is really the, the resilience of our of our ancestors. I mean, I, I just think about uh, my grandparents and, um, you know, the parents of my, of my parents and how, you know, uh, uh, with a lot of suffering and a lot, a lot of dedication, they were able to give my family uh, a life for enough uh, to have enough to to provide for me and my siblings. And and I have them in mind all the time with the work, and I continue to hopefully try to accomplish their wildest dreams.
0: I love that. Nice. Thank you.
1: So flipping Arizona is monumental. Um, tell us about the history of the work in Arizona, the work that you and other organizers have been doing for decades to get to this very point right now.
4: Joe, let me, let me start by saying that it is never easy to talk about work that is historical uh, in building that it's like, it takes, it takes a whole community Mm -hmm. because we always leave people out. Right. And that's, that's a really unfortunate thing. I think that nowadays with social media, Some of us get more shine and some of us get more of a spotlight, but uh, there are so many people out there that did incredible things. I'm gonna just like really quickly say that in the first years after 9 11, there was a really bad anti immigrant sentiment in in Arizona that, you know, there were actually people shot Mm -hmm. in the the border. You know, I I was uh, patrolling and I'm gonna tell you really something funny I haven't said ever before, but, you know, Kirsten Sinema, the now senator of Arizona, uh, used to go out and like, you know, check on the men who were patrolling uh, the desert. She was actually one of the people who was trying to look for humane and legal aid in the in the desert, that's how I met her. Mm-hmm. And there were people like that everywhere in the country, sorry, in the state, trying to do something against this kind of anti-immigrant sentiment. But in the cities, uh, we had like a trifecta of hate, you know, it was like Sheriff Jora who was doing mm-hmm. raids in car washes and, you know, water parks. Um, on a weekend, you know, and then um, Russell Pierce, who was like this xenophobe, this horrendous uh, person who uh, wrote most of the anti-immigrant legislation that was uh, passed here in Arizona, everything from denying immigrants uh, rights to services, to, you know, uh, punishing you if you were in a car riding with an undocumented immigrant. If you didn't report that person, you would also get in trouble. No, shit like that, that it was just really horrendous. Um, and then the third one who uh, is Jen Brewer, the governor of Arizona. And, you know, we can't forget that she became governor because Jared Napolitano left to join the Obama administration mm-hmm. and kind of started this, you know, immigration uh, and detention machine and deportation machine in the Obama administration. So we were left in Arizona with like really the worst of the worst. And I think what happened is that, you know, we created these movements, right? Like young people... Uh, Started coming out, and we started organizing marches. Back then, I was on the radio, and I was doing organizing as well. And we were organizing protests and marches and hunger strikes and everything we could. And it felt a little bit like we were with our backs against the wall, always fighting. And it wasn't until 2010 when SB 1070 was passed, which is the Show Me Your Papers law. This law that you know, like if I I was driving while brown, I would be stopped, stopped, and asked for my papers. Right. Right, just
1: asinine yeah
4: correct and, and and when that happened you know to be honest before then i think that there were also latinos you know uh, brown folks who were like anti-immigrant too they were like voting yeah. with the with the right right mm-hmm. but i think what happened is that, that that's when sb 1070 passed um actually kind of mixed race and status it wasn't more about you're undocumented or not it was like well, you're brown mm-hmm. and that's when i like, really think started changing and catalyzing and i think that's, that's when organizing kind of you no. Know, got caught, caught fire that's when mm. organizations like Puente Human Rights started organizing marches and and you know protests and one Arizona a, a c3 table was created to uh, register the voters that were coming to the protest we our slogan was hoy marchamos mañana votamos today mm. we we march tomorrow we vote mm. and I keep telling people we kept our promise 10 years later yeah. over half a million uh, voters registered and we delivered the state. Nice. And we delivered the state. Right, right. (laughs) Yo, that is the
0: biggest flex anyone could ever have. Like, (laughs) and we delivered the state. You know what I mean? Like, Stacey Abrams, I mean, I love her and, like, respect, you know, like, major salute to... But she's fucking Stacey Abrams. You know what (laughs) I'm saying? Like, when organizers say, and we delivered the state... Like, I just want to pause for a second. Can you hit us again? Or maybe we could just like run it back, you know, and just like play that shit over a bounce beat, you know, and we deliver
4: to say, we deliver to say <laughs> great. You know, and we mean, gotta do it in different rhythms because our community needs to know also that we did this, you know. Like, yes. I think that's something we make mistakes, like we do so much work to try to win in an election, and then we're like, All right, see you later till three years from now. Right. No, yeah. it's important to go back and tell people, like, let's be proud. We stood this. This was the epicenter of hate, and now we're a battleground state. That's how powerful we are. In 10 years, we are the microcosm of the country, and we say no more to these, you know, anti-immigrant, hateful people. Same with Trump. We defeated all the other three, the trifecta, before now we're defeating this guy, And we will never let it happen again. And I think that's what's powerful. When community hears that in a Norteño song or in whatever, you know, Uh, we're like, yes, Give it to me
0: in a Norteño song real quick. Let's go. go. Give it to me in a Norteño (laughs) (laughs) song. In un corrido.
4: I gotta do it in a corrido.
0: Okay, hit me with a corrido. I don't
4: know if I can do that right
0: now. Um, Man, it's just so beautiful. Like, it just makes me, it gives me so much joy. I, I don't even know how long we've known each other, but pretty much ever since I've met you, you know, you're like, this is my work, like, you know, laser focused. I've never seen someone so laser focused over the course of 10 years, you know, just be like, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And I just heard you, you know, I you know, we would hang out, have drinks, random conferences and different things we'd teach each other at. And I'd always hear you say it's the epic center of, of hate and we're going to make it the epic center of, lo- of love and, you know, and like all of these things. Right. And how you were going to flip it. Fam, you flip the state. I mean, obviously with yeah. a coalition of yeah, yeah, yeah. many, many organizations that represent um you know brown folks that represent indigenous folks that represents black black folks and so like what did it look like to work together because i can tell you i mean working together it could be a little you know it could be hard um for many reasons and so like what was that like talk to us about that
4: yeah i think that we gotta start by saying that we were forged out of pain and crisis right like Mm -hmm. again remember in one day Sometimes some of us will be out on the streets trying to get pulled over so we could sue the the city, right? Or we Mm. could sue the state because we were pulled over uh, while driving while brown, right? While others, uh, we were organizing a boycott against the state of Arizona, like telling artists, don't come here. Conferences, don't come here. Oh, right. I remember that. Yeah. And we we were organizing, you know... politicians and telling them like you had to take a stand or the, the, the chamber of commerce right like there were so many people doing so many things and we were all hating on each other all the time like arguing you know always like calling each other out like why are you doing that strategy why are you doing that strategy and really i remember that we used to do like dinners um at people's houses just to like hang out and see each other's humanity. And I think that we kind of grew up, um, you know, through the movement in the last 10 years to a place where we are like, sometimes we might not agree with someone else's approach, but we know that they've been important and we know where they come from and we Mm -hmm. know their family and we know their struggles. And we know that, you know, at the end of the day, they're trying to do this um, with the same values that we have, right? Even if we go about it differently. Mm -hmm. I think that is something that movements create when movements are created, from a place of struggle and we don't forget that, um, I think that's important. Of course there are always people who come in you know and try to take the glory or take the snaps or the applause Uh, Just because you know they arrive and saved and I think that that is when things turn dangerous, right? That's Mm. when people uh, um, You know start kind of breaking movements and I think that in Arizona We've been very lucky because the folks who are running the infrastructure, you know from the person who runs the C3 table the C4 table Lucha, Mi Familia Vota, Chispa, all these organizations OVOV, Our Voice, Our Vote These organizations are led by the people who were fighting 10 years ago now, right? Um, and there are very few people that are, you know, kind of parachuting in and there's space for people who are new too. And I think that kind of like sense of knowing who, who has been in this, it's a really powerful thing. Even knowing whose strengths each one of us have. Now it's mm-hmm. not easy. I'm still, you know, called for mediation sometimes. I'm still calling to mediation <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's still an ongoing effort, right? Like right now we're trying to figure out, so what do we do with this power, right? Yeah. And that's, that's another thing
0: okay we want to talk about that in a second I have a question about the mediation is uh just because so many of us don't realize that's actually something we should be doing right that's a tool for us and so can you just give us a sense of like who does the mediation and like what could like an issue be say could an issue be like uh when I first came to this space like maybe that's this fail like you didn't look at me right like you know, or what do you, what do people have mediation is it like just deep issues you know talk to us
4: i i think that you know it's always about scarcity maddie it's always about someone saying like i don't have that or, or you know or i want that or you're taking too much usually that's where it comes from and it also comes from personalities right like just to be honest there, i think that There are assholes in campaigns, people who work Mm. in politics that they think that they deserve the world and that everybody should kiss their feet, you know, and that they are, you know, the smartest people everywhere. And I think they're, and usually they're guys, you know, we are men who are usually playing that role. And and I think that that is usually where it comes from. I'll tell you that I've been lucky enough to be called to see if I could mediate conversations. And usually they start with like a reminder about what we love each other Mm. and why we do this work and then kind of like seeing the differences and where those differences broke down in the conversation. But usually it's scarcity. Um, Mm. and that's, you know, the, the way that the nonprofit, you know, industrial complex works, right? Like trying to make a scene, like there's only $1 for all of us and we have to fight over it. And I think that there's been a lot of efforts in the last couple of years for people to think about there's enough out there. And by the way, all of that money is ours. We're just getting it back. And when we think like that, you know, we have less conflict because then we are co-conspiring with each other. Uh, but, but, you know, very often also I get called uh, because I said something in a meeting uh, and I am always in meetings saying... This 24, 48 hour rule, like people have 24 hours to call on me. And if I said something that didn't sit well with me, come at me, right. And tell me, but if it doesn't, if you don't say it, don't hold it with you as a grudge because mm. then it becomes something else. Right. And I think too often we're like walking around with petty feelings inside that we don't say yeah. to each other. you
0: know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So if you're going to hit me with the petty stuff, like hit me within 24 to 48 hours just to be like, all right. I like that.
1: I know looking at the news, you know, throughout the uh, election, when they're counting votes or whatnot, everybody was on pins and needles like, yo, what is Arizona going to do? What is Arizona going to do? Same thing with Georgia. Same thing with Pennsylvania. So how did it feel when you saw that the uh, AP finally called Arizona for Biden?
4: Joe, Joe, I'm going to tell you that I, this is going to sound a little bit, you know, like uh, like I'm lying, but I actually was very confident about the result the okay. whole year. Okay. Um, and the reason I was confident is because I had never seen so much excitement from our mm. community to say like, fuck this, mm. like we're going to go out. Like, you know, uh, particularly women. I mean, uh, women really carry this election. Um, you know, people like my mother who became a citizen because she wanted to get rid of Donald Trump. and you know, uh, 87%, 87% of our volunteers in, in our campaign were women. Wow. Um, that is huge, yeah. right? Like that tells me where the energy was. So I, I felt throughout the year, like we're winning this, we're going to win it. And to be honest, I wasn't paying attention to other States. I was looking at Arizona. I was looking at our, Arizona every day, all day, just thinking about what's happening here. Um, and then on election night, when, when, uh, when Fox News called it, um, I, I, felt relieved because I felt like, you know, all this work, it's actually paying off. And what I thought about is like, this story that we've been telling about how Arizona is a microcosm of the rest of the country, it's real, right? And I hope that the message is not just like, oh, Arizona flipped, but this is what you can do when you invest year round in communities of color, where communities of color are in charge of the strategy, when we are you know the the ones who are, have the clairvoyance to think about the future. We are invested on and we're building the political infrastructure. This is what happens. That's why Georgia and Arizona look the way they look, right? And that's why Nevada was like on the thread even after so many years of investment because they're transactional investments sometimes, right? And I think in Arizona we work year round. We work in issues. We're always talking to community. We're always building community, even if it's immigration or mutual aid or the border uh, or if it's you know in support of. Um, the, the repeal of like racist laws in, in the city. We're always talking about, you know, uh, civic engagement and civic participation. And I think that that is translates in this. Um, and an election that I was like, well, yeah, we made our promise. We kept our promise. We made it 10 years ago. And this is it. And, and I was really proud of our community for delivering what we said we were going to do.
0: You know, I did see a lot of press around specifically the um big number of voters uh in the native community and so can you just talk a little bit about that about like what that looked like um were there already folks who were doing to your point doing work until that was an easier transition uh with the civic engagement and then you know actually getting folks to the poll or was that sort of new infrastructure that needed to get built like organizing infrastructure
4: I think it was both, Maddie. I think that we had some organizations that were working on their own individually. And I think that there was an effort to like bring people together and create the space for new for new folks. We knew that the state couldn't be delivered if Native American participation didn't increase by 2%. We knew that. We knew that the Native Americans were crucial were crucial for this. So, uh, you know, for example, we launched a contest called the Native American Border Engagement NAVE project. And we basically said, we'll give you $30,000 if you pitch a good idea on how to increase voter participation. So we received, you know, dozens of applicant applications, native folks who were like, this is my idea, this is my idea. Um, and five of them were finalists. And the, the folks who won that contest ended up with like $65,000 wow. On. And like attraction, attracting dollars. But the other four organizations received, you know, thousands of dollars of investments as well. So there were some of them were like graphic designers who created really amazing images. Some of them created mm. videos. Some of them became spokespeople. And these kind of like sense of creating a space where Native folks were like in charge. They were the ones who were getting the like, they were the ones who were in charge of the ideas and the execution of the ideas really changed the dynamic, right? We started attracting more dollars. There was an organization, there is an organization called ITCA, the Intertribal Council of Arizona, which basically organizes with all the 22 tribes in the state of Arizona. And they've always been a little bit apolitical. This year, they changed it. They actually became a coalition that started doing voter registration, and voter information. And we can't forget that in Arizona, one in four cases of COVID are native. Even when they are less than 10% of the population, they're being hit really hard. So they were also super angry they were like what the fuck is happening you know they're taking over ventilators we don't receiving any aid we don't even have water and they're telling us to wash our hands so i think they were fed up enough to say you know we're gonna go out and we're gonna vote and they voted in historical numbers and yeah. you know over 85 percent of them voted for biden
0: love it um I can just see right from a, I really wanted folks to get the the context of like Arizona, but then going super, super deep, like I could see that there was all of this power that was built, um, from like neighborhoods from, you know, reservations and that, you know, shot straight up. So now there's all this power in Arizona, right. That already existed, but that's been activated. Um, and through these organizations and through these just sort of community groups. Um, so what now, right. How, how are organizers and organizations and sort of the collective going to leverage that? And then specifically like, um, God delivered Arizona to the Democratic Party, you know, and what does the Democratic Party owe the people of Arizona?
4: Oh, my God. That's a, that's a point here, right? Like, I think first things first, we do have the right to rest and the, re- the right to restore. And I think that one thing that I'm telling people when they're asking me what's next, I'm saying, like, give us time to think. Let us give us time to be in silence. Let us give us time to connect with each other, laugh and take care of ourselves because, COVID is, is not a joke, right? And, and it's coming with a vengeance. And, and you know, we already have uh, loved ones that are uh, getting the disease. And, and I want to make sure that we, not, mm, before we do anything, let's start with being and like just being with our with each other and being with with what we did. Uh, the second thing is that we are doing several things. There's a project already happening with all these organizations you mentioned, you know, the, the coalition of all the uh, communities of color coming together and creating a platform for the next 10 years, you know, and they're already Mm -hmm. thinking about what are the policies we want to push starting in January. And there is a platform already being built. The second thing we're doing is also thinking about political infrastructure. You know, two weeks ago, we launched a a fellowship called the harvest and, you know, the harvest comes after the rain. Right. And, and what we're saying is like, okay, we're going to train 22 all, Uh, folks of color to be policy makers and policy shapers so we're going to be offering them jobs you know connecting them with jobs in the private sector in the legislature with the different organizations so that they can get in there but think about it like this and they're not only going to go as individual but we're telling them you're going with us you're going to be our intelligence you're going to pick up our phone calls you're going to be also be a voice in there for us and they're all fired up about it right and they're learning about different things for example we are really basing a lot of our policy making on the black panther uh, ideology, and how do you mm. think about policy outside of the system, right? Yeah. And what do, you do, what do you do within the system to change it? What do you do against the system to change it? I mean, the final thing is that we have to get better uh, training uh, candidates. Uh, we can, we're can. we not a kept electorate of the Democrat. I am not working for the Democratic Party. I'm working for my community. It happened to be that the Democrats are the choice right now that we have to make. But at the end of the day, I want to hire, I want to recruit, and I want to uh, support and elect better candidates. So I think that's the next step for us. like, you know, we elected Carlos Garcia for the city council last year, the guy who organized most of the marches in, during the, you know, 10, 1070, right? We are, we, we, uh, the woman who's running for democratic whip in Arizona, Raquel Teran was a woman who was, you know, filing lawsuits and, and, and against Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Our people are starting to run. We got to identify more and more and more people who are going to take into those offices so we can hold them accountable. And at the end of the day, if, you know, I spend always more time protesting Democrats than electing them. So I'm ready for whatever's coming.
0: I'm here for it. Uh, we'll be cheering you on. I have a, a sort of, if you had advice to give to young organizers or young people who don't even identify as organizers, right? Who just like know that there needs to be a change in their community, what would you say to them?
4: Don't go, to start? don't go to
0: law
4: school. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> everybody's like, what are you, what do I do? I want to go to law school. No, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, do whatever you want. But uh, I'll say what what I would really, really recommend is that we have to do more analysis of power collectively. Mm-hmm. You know, power is like water. It moves around to wherever it needs to move. And none of us have it on hold it forever. Uh, there is a group of folks that like, you know, racist, Folks who want to uphold white supremacy, that want to keep power, and they're a minority that have way too much power. We have to, as people, as individuals, as organizers, as just regular folk, continue to think about who has power and how do I take it from them. If we don't do that analysis, we're going to continue to just like burn ourselves out because we keep going out there with rage uh, and being our, you know, being righteous. But nobody wins by being righteous. We win by being strategic. Strategic. We win by being smart. And the only way to be to do that is to do the actual work. You know, who is this policy benefiting? How do I get to a place where I can take the power away? And what do I need to do either with my individual choices of what do I consume or where do I invest or where do I live or who do I support or all the way to who do I work for? How do I work for What is my role in this movement? And I think that there's a lot of martyrdom out there right now. People who are like feeling guilty for not doing and solving at all you are not, you are not the solution for everything. You're the solution for a thing, for a group, for yourself and your responsibility. So like dial down a little bit of the pressure you feel in yourself, dial Mm -hmm. down a little bit of that, like expectation that you have of being perfect or like representing the culture, like be the best you can be, inform yourself and create community with others. And we're going to be fine.
0: Thank you, Luis.
4: Thank you both. This is so much fun. (laughs)
0: Thank you. And, um, yeah, go check Luis out and jump in his DMS. Um, you know, he's like a wealth of information and knowledge. He's one of my, uh, organizing, um, homies, but really has taught me so much, everything from, you know, like strategy to like training folks. So if you want his, uh, instituto to look, are y'all, uh, taking contracts right now? We're always taking everything. We're always (laughs) all right, all right, all right. Listen, go, go get your team uh, trained. Go get, you know, uh, make sure that you have all the information and tools that we need to be able to do this work and to be able to do this work well. So uh, jump. We'll actually make sure that we tag him and all that. Uh, Yeah, get get trained, fam, and get trained by Instituto. Uh, That's who we use. So. Uh we appreciate you, Luis, and look forward to uh, all the, the stuff you're going to do in the future. Yeah, we'll have to let you get the rest and all of that that you asked for before we ask you what's next, because I already know it's got to be good.
4: It's got to be good. Thank you so much for making this, creating this space. I love your show. I love the first Part of a show where you're always just like you know shooting the the shit and talking, and I love that. I love to listen to it. Keep doing, keep doing it. You're doing a great service to all of us.
0: Awesome, thank you. Excited you. Well, this was good, Joe. I mean, dang, I, I don't I, I, we got so much.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I think so we got much so matter.
0: much the analysis, but then also just like really solid people who are doing mm-hmm. this work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very inspiring
0: yeah.
1: too. What are you walking away with? What am I walking away with? Let's see. Um, What's your takeaway? I, I love the fact that Louise put out that you can't do it alone. It's not just you. So it's like, take take this moment and just try to press forward and do the best that you can do. A lot of the times... Um, I know myself, some of my friends were always like, no, I got to do something greater. I got to do something greater. Kind of like Luis was mentioning, like, oh, I'm thinking about ball school. Like, I got to do something. But it's like, just understand where you are, understand that there is more that you can do and just take that day by day.
0: Yeah. How about you, I Jerry? Think, yeah, I think for me, I'm taking away what I heard, I think through all of them is like uh, something that Luis finished off with and said like, investment is needed, right? Mm-hmm. When you invest into the community year-round, like you know, and year after year, um then we can produce you know these monumental uh kind of monumental Mary. Uh, we can produce <laughs> <laughs> we can produce these uh, crazy results, right? right? But then, you know, hearing from Tanika is really like it's not just about the investment, uh, sort of externally, right, into these communities and organizations that we work for, but it's also our personal investment into ourselves, mm-hmm. into our expression, into our culture, into, um, you know, how we how we take care of ourselves and, you know, also how we build family. Right. Um, you know, Christina talks about how she was, I think her daughter was eight months or something when she announced that she was running for office and, you know, now her daughter's almost two. And so it's been a long journey. Um, but these things are possible when we're able to take care of ourselves, when we're able to invest in ourselves and invest into our communities. And so uh, I think you know, what I'm walking away with is, um, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon, Yes. you know, the marathon marathon continues, continues. right. Uh, shout out to Nip. Um, and you know, so figure out how you're going to take care of yourself, figure out how you're going to invest into your community, figure out what, you know, what trainings, what mediations, what different things that you need in order to be great, in order to uh, really do the work of, of creating change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we hope that everyone is, uh, has their takeaways. Feel free to, you know, when you listen to the episode, write them down, put them on a the gram, tag us. Because, you know, we just want to hear from y'all. Thank you so much for listening to the Black and Brown Get Down. We hope that you love this election special. Make sure you subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. At least some ratings. Right.
1: Some ratings, some reviews. Give us some love. All right. Hop up in them DMs. Tell us what you want us to talk about. Tell us what you don't want us to talk about.
0: I like that. Um, because I sure will leave you on red. No, I'm playing. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) This is about the podcast. Hop into the DMs. Um, Uh, And uh, yeah, recommend a guest. Follow us on Instagram at Black and Brown Get Down. Black
1: and Brown Get Down. Woo! Hey. Yay! Peace and love, y'all.
2: Bye.